and welcome to More Games Than Time. I'm Lee. I'm Roger. And we're meeting together to, to record the podcast face-to-face. Shocking, shocking. Yes. Um, we, we, only, we only have two recorders running. I mean, how, how do people live with this sort of barbarity? <laughs> but we have, we have been playing games, some of them even together. And uh, we, we have, a, have a chat about something that I think has been getting a bit more general attention recently, the, the uh, environmental impact of board games and what can we do about it, and indeed, should we do anything about it? And I think we'll probably spoil us the answer to be yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, that, the fact the question is, is not immediately obvious is, is uh, something in itself. So, Roger, I've been playing Crisis. It's a game I think. Have you played it with us once? I think you've played, played it with some one PG people. I don't know whether it was sort of one PG meet as such, but I'm, yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is a it's a worker placement game that is a, a thinly veiled, thinly disguised um, theming around the collapse of the Greek economy in two thousand and eight. Um, the general idea is that you're trying to, to rebuild that economy through uh, capitalism, through private enterprise, but under the restrictions of uh, mandates from, uh, I can't remember, they call it Euraxia or something again, the EU is, is that thinly veiled. Um, and if you don't hit a, a certain level of prosperity in each round of the game, then all the players lose. So no, you also ought to get as much loot out as you can before that happens. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's uh, it's a competitive worker place worker placement game, but one with the potential for everybody to lose if somebody such as say me in some games might deliberately start tanking it if uh, <laughs> if things aren't going well. I I uh, it plays one to four. I think it's best with four. I think every player you lose. It loses some of what makes it good. Yeah, I think I've only played it once, and it was definitely full player count. Yeah, um, I mean, so you'll probably remember, I suspect, from from that that the competition for for worker spots because a lot of the spots on the board in the sort of traditional worker placement um, systems, ones that only one player can go to, mm-hmm. and that competition for places is really what makes the game. I certainly found it very tight. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and as I say, I think it loses that um, with, with every player you knock off. Um, I did post a variant to Board Game Geek oof, over a year ago. It's up there somewhere, um, which was modelled on some of Uwe Rosenberg's recent worker placement games, mm-hmm. where you're basically playing two colours, so you're sort of blocking yourself off between rounds. So this is a, a sort of variant. Yeah, yeah, and that helps to tighten it up at one player. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still loses some of that magic, I think, um, that it does at the higher player counts. And at four player counts, it's a really good game. I really enjoy it. Mm. And quite cynical, but also it's that, that good thing that a simulation game can do of saying, yes, these people are doing horrible things, but here is why they are doing horrible yeah. things. Yeah, and, and you do get immersed into that spirit. And at the same time, have a good laugh about it, I think. Um, mm-hmm. if it does make you sort of think about some of these situations, which I guess is what the designers were, were going for, thinking about macroeconomics of, um, of the whole system. Yeah, because it can 
that sort of thinking can produce results that seem perverse, but it's just a matter of each individual is doing what they think is the right thing for them, mm. for their benefit. And, yeah. When I played it, we, I think we did actually survive to the end. It, uh, it can be done. <laughs> he, he, no, nobody came out looking good, but I think that's kind of the point. Yeah, I mean, I should say, at each player count, um, the, the goal you have to reach, reach in each round varies um, for the player count. Mm-hmm. And also has three difficulty levels at each player count. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, on easy, I think if at least one player has played it before, then you should be able to just about hit that. It might be tight, but you should be able to mm-hmm. to win. Um, but it can get very difficult on the more difficult levels. So has has there been much development on this since, since it came out? I don't think I heard of any expansions or anything of that sort. Though. It's been long rumoured. Um, there is meant to be an expansion with a, a subsequent Kickstarter that they were talking about two or three years ago. Um, whether it's been delayed because of the pandemic, I don't know. Um, things affecting the European economy, yeah. I do know that one of the things that was meant to be included in the, in the expansion was a new solo variant, um, which was mm-hmm. from a different designer. I suspect I know which different designer. Mm-hmm. Um, which doesn't fill me with a great deal of enthusiasm, but it will, will do some people, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so there is meant to be an expansion coming. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it sold well, I think, when it came out. And I think I've seen this occasionally floating around second hand, so... It, yeah, I mean, we're, we're strangely talking live to each other today rather than <laughs> over the computer. The first time we've recorded a podcast this way, this is at the end of the One Player Guild meetup. And that there were two copies in the room earlier. Yeah, I don't have my usual spare laptop here to look things (laughs) up. So I have been playing, and indeed you have been a little bit too, uh, Onitama. Yes. Uh, 2014 by Shempo Sato. Uh, I think one could fairly call it a mini chess game. Yeah, it's often described as that. And simplified, maybe? Simplified, well, inevitably simplified, but with interesting constraints. Yeah. So, you, yeah, five, five by five board, um, you have four, four pawns and one king, in effect. Um, but your moves are restricted because you have four, uh, in, in any given game, you will use five of the move cards. I think it's about 20 in the base game right. and something like that in the expansions. Uh, you start with two each and one in the middle. Mm-hmm. You use one of the moves on one of your cards and sort it with the one in the middle. Mm. So... If, if I move on my, my turn one and then you move, then I take another move, uh, you will have access to the card that I used on my turn one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like it because you, you get random variation, but all the randomization has happened by the time the game starts. Yeah. So you know, sometimes you will simply have no option to move directly forward one square. Mm. Usually you will, but not always. Um, and, but, but it stays... Even-handed, because you know, no, nobody's going to win in the first two or three yeah. turns. It, it, it's just not uh, viable. So everybody gets a chance to use everything that's out there. Yeah. And we should say this is a, a two-player-only game. Yeah. Um, I don't know of any attempts at a solo variant. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if there are out there people who have done it for chess, but... Yeah. I haven't seen it. I mean, I think chess are normally sort of puzzles, the solo variants for chess, aren't they? Chess solo puzzles. Yeah. It was, used to get published in newspapers. I don't know if they still are. But, yeah, game takes about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, I don't know. The, the original 
publication was the Japanese company Conception. Uh, 2016 Arcane Wonders edition mm-hmm. is the one that I think most people have seen over here. Uh, it, it, it's an odd sort of publisher because they do this, they do Airland and Sea, uh, yeah. they do Sheriff of Nottingham, mm-hmm. they do Smartphone Inc. Some of these, I think, Sheriff of Nottingham and Only Time were included, were in the, the Dice Tower Select line, weren't they? I believe Arcane Wonders is the official publisher of the Dice Tower Select line. Mm. But it, it, yeah, some, some publishers definitely try for this is the sort of game we publish, and Arcane Wonders, I think, produce pretty much anything they think will work reasonably well. Uh, it's, Possibly not a very deep game. I have a bad reaction to chess because I played it at school uh, and I got to the point where I was going to have to remember, you know, memorise opening books mm. if I was going to get any better and I just didn't want to do that. I was really memorising lots of stuff for exams. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I generally have a bad feeling on what you might call chess-like games. Okay. But the, this one I like possibly because you know, no, nobody's given it so much serious playing time that they are experts at it, or at least if they, they are, have, I haven't met them. Right. Um, yes, I will get beaten quite often, and I will beat people quite often, and that's fine. Uh, you, so, don't, you don't need to have a whole racing thing, and you know, if, if you are 200 points above me, there's not even any point in your playing. <laughs> <laughs> My relationship with chess, I think, is slightly different to yours, and it reflects something in me as a gamer, the way that I think, I don't know, that I'm very strategic. So mm-hmm. I'll start out a game of chess and I'll have a plan in my mind of what I'm going to do and I'm going to go there and I'm going to go there and I'm going to go there and eventually I'm going to win because obviously that's the end of the game. <laughs> Around about turn three or four, you will do something that will completely scupper all of my plans and I won't know what to do anymore and I'll get very <laughs> frustrated. Normally if I win a game of chess, it will be within five to six moves. Right. Most of the time I will lose and lose horribly. Mm-hmm. Um Onitama, because you've got this restriction of the cards that you, your moves you can take, I think I'm moving straight into that phase of I don't know what to do. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, the one positive thing about it for me is that the space of time in between I realise I have messed up and I'm now going to lose this game and I have lost this game is very short and quite a small part of the mm-hmm. overall gameplay. Because uh, that Obviously, in, in full-size chess, you, you have the resignation mechanic to, to prevent having to play out the whole thing where you know how it's going to happen. On its own, it doesn't need that because it's just over quickly. Yeah. And that, that's, I, that's what I enjoy. Yeah. Okay. So, that's on its own. Um, so, very rarely, Roger, you, I understand you and I have both been playing games in the, the BGG hotness. Have we? I, I believe so, and I've been playing Cascadia. Mm-hmm. Um... Which I think for me falls into a, a problem that you famously described as the abstraction trap. I'm getting over that these days. You're, but you're, but this, this may be a good game for you. We'll, <laughs> maybe we'll find out. Um, so I think Cascadia, I've only played it solo. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really, really good, solid game. It bears absolutely no relation to its theme whatsoever. You're basically constructing a wilderness, aren't you? So. Well, you're meant to be, but you're not. <laughs> so, on your turn, you, there's a, a, I think it's, what do they call it? Intermesh drafting? So mm-hmm. there's, um, a, an animal token and a landscape token that are d- drawn randomly and then paired up and you choose that pair. Okay. Um, you can place the animal token onto your tile, maybe. Or onto another tile into your in your tableau that you're building up. So there's separate tableaus, or 
Yeah, you're, you're each working on your own okay. um, area. Um, each t- landscape tile you draft will have some animal icons on it, which don't score the animals themselves. They'll tell you where you can put the animal icon. Mm. So if it's got a, a bear and a fish and uh, I can't remember, an eagle on it, then you can't put a deer on there. Okay. So where this sort of abstraction comes into it for me, I think, you, you score points for building up a landscape area. Mm-hmm. You also score points for the five different types of animals in the game. Um, and at the start of the game, you'll draw a card for each one of those different types which would tell you how you will score that animal. So it might be that you will score a run of five salmon. Okay. Each salmon will score you one point up to a run of five. Which, you know, a run of salmon, you're creating river, that's fine. Except mm-hmm. not all of those tiles that have space for fish are river tiles. Some of them are desert. Okay. <laughs> so this is where I'm starting to have um, the abstraction gap. I mean, in last it. time, a couple of times ago, we talked about that woodland creature, the elephant. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and so I mean, some of the some of the ways you score the animals make some kind of sense. Maybe that you get points for herds of um, deer. Um, mm-hmm. You get points for rings of deer because obviously they love to appear in rings. <laughs> um, sometimes you score for the runs of salmon. Sometimes you score for animals that are adjacent to the salmon. Maybe that's animals that are adjacent to a water source. I don't know. Or eat the salmon if they're bears. Eagles that can see each other because they like to see each other. Um, Foxes that are surrounded by different kinds of other animals. Again, that's maybe vaguely thematic. But to me, there's... But but if you said this was, you know, red triangles and green squares... It would make no difference. Yeah. And I think that's... Yeah, so that's the abstraction gap for me. I think it's a really solid, mechanically solid game, but the theme does not come through at all. I mean, you could argue perhaps... Hmm. The theme of trying to create a wilderness isn't, unless you're creating a god game, isn't really a, a, a theme you can carry anyway, I don't know. Yeah, well, consider, um, we talked about several episodes ago, Small Islands, where mm. you, you are, I mean, who are you in that game? Yeah. You're laying down tiles to determine where the shoreline is. Yeah. But, and it can, it, it, it used to be a big bar for me, it is much less of one now, so that's something. Yeah. Okay, so as I say, this might be something that appeals to you, I don't know. It's, I think, as I see it, it's, a, it's an abstract tile laying game. It's a very solid, mechanically solid abstract tile laying mm. game. And I can understand the base getting from that view. The art, I can't... We, I know you and I have talked before about my feelings towards Beth Sobel's art. And I can't remember if it was on the podcast or not. Yeah. Um, but I'm not a fan. So that doesn't help me either. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some art that some people love there's a mechanically solid game the theme isn't really there for me and that's yeah I, I know a couple of other people who have been playing it and saying yeah like the game um, and it, the, pos- the more positive side of this is this caused me to think about mm. you know my trip to, my trip to the Oregon wilderness right um, but yeah I can, I can say that this is not yeah you, you are not Theoretically, visiting bits of it or no. anything of that sort. Yeah, so that's Cascadia. And I've been playing Regicide, or rather I've been being a substrate for Regicide <laughs> uh, on the um, discussion to Keely Lee forum. Uh, so this is a cooperative game using, potentially using at least a standard deck of cards, so you, you can do one with, with their own um, art they got in. 
Paul Abrahams, Luke Badger, and Andy Richdale, uh, uh, New Zealand uh, firm Badgers from Mars. The basic idea is that there is a revolution going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the court cards are the enemies. Um, first of all, you 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 would be playing against the four jacks in a random order, and right. then the queens, then the kings, mm-hmm. and the, the rest of the cards are basically you 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 and the people you're throwing against them. So a a jack, for example, yeah. starts with an attack of ten and fifty and twenty health. Yeah. So just and to clarify, this is a game that originally could play with a, a standard deck of absolutely cards. Absolutely, a standard deck of cards, um, and that that is in fact how I've played it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you play a five, then you've done five damage to that jack, and he's, and he's only got 15 health left, but he then does his 10 damage back to you. You have to discard uh, 10 value of cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, suits have powers, so what, 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 when you discard cards because, you, because you're soaking damage with them, or once, some, once one of the enemies is killed, uh, they go to the discard, mm-hmm. and the cards you use to, kill, to attack them might go to the discard. Uh, hearts will take it from, take cards randomly from the discard back into the tavern, the draw pile. Mm-hmm. Um, diamonds go from the draw pile to everybody's hands. Spades reduce the attack that the enemy is doing right. until you kill it. So uh, how how do you anyway. track all these enemy thing, the um, damage no, things? Is it dice on the cards or no? Basically, you, you just have a row of cards that are the damage that is currently being done to that current enemy. So if, you, right. if you've got a jack and a ten and a three, then mm-hmm. well, that's thirteen damage you've done to that jack, and you, mm-hmm. and you know that he's got twenty total. Okay. You, you could do it with counters, mm-hmm. uh, but I haven't seen it done. Um, and there, there are a lot, there are various little complexities. Like if you do enough damage to kill somebody exactly, mm. um, then instead of sending them to the discard, you put them at the top of the draw deck, and you can get them into your hand more quickly. Right, because like they are once they are defeated, they will they will work for you in future. Okay. Um, and the, the things like that, you, you've got you, you can build combinations of low value cards that are still vaguely useful. Mm-hmm. It has the standard thing about no communication about the contents of hands, and I'm really glad to say they do not do the mealy mouth thing that some games do of saying you know you can hint but you can't name the card, which is always yeah, a yeah. irking thing for me. But they just say no, you just can't communicate about yeah. the contents of your hands. But it's, it's- is it a cooperative it game? Is, it is entirely cooperative. Right, okay. Uh, two, three, or four, there is, there is an unofficial solo mode as well. Right. Uh, which plays very much like the main mm-hmm. game, in fact. Um, so basically, it, it's normally um, in order around the table. Uh, it has various ways of saying, in this particular case, you can you can jump the turn to somebody else, or mm-hmm. if, if, if you kill someone, one of the enemies, then, then you have to take on the next one immediately. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, I think it's probably my favourite game with a standard deck of cards. I'm not big on games with standard decks right. of cards. It does something completely different mm. from the usual sort of thing. Um, I've just had a great deal of fun with it. Uh, you, and I've run through a couple of open open hand training games mm-hmm. so far, and um, one one in progress, which I'll update when I get home of um, closed hand because. Basically, a, a forum game of this sort need, needs somebody to effectively be game master. I'm not, I'm not making any decisions, but yeah. I'm just saying, some, someone says they'll play this card, I say, okay, these are the cards you've got in your hand that nobody else in the game knows about. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, a small game, um, 
production is tricky. Yeah, we should probably mention um, the Gaming Goat. Um, not to go into detail about this, but they have attracted a lot of negative attention. They are the US, well, they were the US and Canada uh, publishing partner for this. Uh, Badgers and Mars have ended their relation, but we don't know when there will be new stock or who will be producing it. Mm-hmm. So depending on how you feel about this, you may want to put off the purchase for a bit if you're in the US or Canada, or you may not. So that's... So yeah. it, I'm, I'm it, not actually a big fan of the art. I mean, I've, I've seen it. I was going to say, I mean, you, you've been playing this with standard cards. Yeah. Yeah. So any issues with publishers aside, have you been enjoying it enough that you would want to buy a retail copy? I would like to buy a retail copy to encourage the designers and to get them to do more. I'm actually not terribly interested in the physical thing. Right. So what I might do is buy it and give it to somebody as a present or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. The, the art, I can't remember the name of the artist. Uh, it just doesn't really work for me. Uh, that's two games in a row where we're just being negative about artists now, <laughs> which we don't mean to be at all. Oh, we're doing it again. And so. <laughs> something to look forward to. Uh, but yeah, it's... The, the, the rules sheet is freely downloadable from BGG. It doesn't actually have the solo variant on it, but, but one of the designers put it in a BGG post. Right. And they're, they're quite happy to share the rules. I, I, I would like to encourage them without necessarily getting the physical artifact that I don't really have space for. I have many, many packs of cards already. Mm. And I don't especially like the look of, so I may just send them some money. I mean, yeah, not? well, I mean, especially since, I mean, as I understand it, it, it is effectively just a fancy standard deck of cards they've, they've made with the yes. game, isn't it? Yeah, so it, it yes. still says and, King, Queen, Jack on it. They haven't and, even changed and, and, that. Any, any standard, um, is the term French suited? The, the standard cards you get mm. in the UK and the USA uh, with two jokers yeah. is what you need. Yeah, I mean, it just strikes me slightly odd that they haven't they haven't you know, renamed those cards or done anything to make it distinguish Well, it. I think it started as a, here is a game you can play with standard cards, yeah. and that then when there was more interest in it and more money coming in, they, they started to say, okay, we can make it. Yeah, but that, that's kind of what I mean. As, as a money-making opportunity, you think they, they try and separate <laughs> it from the, the standard deck of cards. To, I mean, there are plenty of games that you can play with standard deck of cards. You play Love Letter with a standard deck of cards, mm. but people don't. They go and buy the cards for the game. So it seems like a bit of a missed opportunity there as far as marketing goes. Yeah, but on the other hand, it's getting a lot of attention. It's very, very easy to mm. set up a game. So, yeah, uh, so that's Regicide. So, Roger, you lent me Dice Hospital. Well. We got to play. We played it in person, yeah. <laughs> so we played a, a three-player game of it earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to be fulsome in my praise. Fair enough. Um, I think I, I I struggle a bit with Euro games with dice in them. Anyway, mm. um, yeah, you're, you're not rolling the dice in this game. They're just I just don't like dice in my Euro games. I don't know why. Fair enough. I just don't. Um, was it before or after we were playing it earlier? We, we, it was before we were playing it, wasn't it? We happened to mention Freedom the Underground Railroad. Mm. And like in that game, there are some decisions that you have to make in Dice Hospital which I find a bit repugnant. Yeah, it's it's an odd sort of theme. Where there, there is... The, 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 this is a British company, though. They're not 
doing the US healthcare no. thing. But but the the idea that the most important thing is is to um, let lots of patients out at the same time. Yeah, is really nothing to do with the theme. It's not. It's nothing to do with anything. And then the fact that you have to take in three new patients each round. Mm-hmm. I mean, there will likely be a point in the game where you have to choose to let some patients die. To be fair, the game we were play, playing today was the first time I've actually had to do that. All three of us did it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, I mean, I found that a very strange yeah, thing as well. If it were abstract, it might be a better game. Um, mm. they've, they've released a, uh, a a separate game with some mechanical overlap called mm. Dice Theme Park, which might be a better yeah. fit. But, I mean, it's one of those that, I've got to say, if, if you said this is a random game, I wouldn't mind. I'd probably enjoy it better. Mm. Also, I can't remember what they mentioned last time, Art by Sabrina Miramore, which is, many people like a great deal, and it's a style that doesn't really work for me. So Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, we just mentioned this with Art, didn't we, that... As, I, mean, I mentioned Beth Sobel with Cascadia. I know she has a lot of fans. A lot of people rush to buy games because of her art, and it just doesn't work for me at all. Yeah. So, so, yeah, no, not one you're going to rush to play again. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, if, yeah, if, we, if I'm at a table and everybody else wants to play it, then, then fair enough. But mm-hmm. as you say, it's not one I'm going to rush to play again. It's... Um, as, it's not dice placement, dice manipulation games go yeah as, as they go I can see it's you know again a solid enough game um, but between the fact that it is a dice manipulation game um, and uh, the slightly strange theming decisions around it it's not going to draw me in back to the table yeah the, the thing that I really want to do at some point because I still haven't got around to it is uh, stop playing with some of the expansion modes and as, as I think mm. I said last time there, there is a um, actual automa as well as just the mm. meet your own score uh, thing in the base game which I haven't tried yet um, I mostly play this multiplayer and um, generally I'm playing as people who haven't played before so I don't use the expansion material always the issue with games <laughs> isn't it yeah all the time you keep introducing people to it you never get them to the expansion stuff yeah so Dice Hospital yeah and you, you let me ravage. I did. Uh, well, what what did you make of this, Rogers? This is outside of your normal wheelhouse. Yeah, well, that, that was one of the reasons I wanted to take a look at it, because uh, we've been talking about various, various dungeon crawlers of various episodes, mm. and the thing that a lot of them seem to do is not have a map. Mm. And this one does. And I really liked the way that the fairly basic set of rules about which monster does what and when can give you quite a lot of emergent tactical complexity, particularly mm-hmm. once you start setting up choke points. Yeah. In, uh, if, if, you're, if you get a bit cunning with the card placement so that everything has to come through the same doors to get mm-hmm. in, um, you, you can, to some extent, ameliorate the whole we have to kill a monster every turn or we're going to get overrun. So, yeah. And that worked very well for me. I, I love the, the economy, the way you, you've got this energy that you use to, to power your nifty tricks. And you actively want to use it, A, because you're probably going to get it back when you roll the dice, but B, because it, it directly turns into experience points and that lets you power up. So it's yeah. encouraging you not, not to save up your stuff, but to use it as soon as you can. Mm. Rules not always as clear as they might be. Uh, mm-hmm. Add one to your attack. Is that one die or one damage? I think it's probably one damage. Yeah, I think so. Uh, can monsters move through each other? Probably not. That sort of thing. 
I'm trying to remember. I think that is in the rules. I may, may have failed to spot it. Yeah, in which case that's a poorly written rule book. Um, decent amount of variability in the missions. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I like about board games in general is the ability to extend them oneself. This doesn't mean I always do it, but I like <laughs> it to be there. And that would be difficult, I think, in this case, because you've got these custom terrain cards. Mm. On the other hand, you, you could sketch something in a grid the right sort of size and just say, okay, you know, when, when we pull the this named card from the deck, we will use this custom environment. Yeah. And, you, and that would be a thing you could do. Yeah, I mean, I think any any game that revolves around cards, actually, is fairly easy to sort of create PMP expansions for if you wanted to. Mm. Uh, this is a case of the designer doing their own art, I believe. That's right, yeah. Don't love the art style, but it works. I mean, I can work out what's mm. going on. I can see what's being depicted. It's, it doesn't look effectively weird mm-hmm. to me. So. Yeah. Um, gotta say, I would have liked name labels on the standees simply because when I'm looking through a thing, I can match words faster than I can match images, but mm-hmm. yeah. That's, that's just a personal quibble. Um, yeah, liked it a whole lot more than I expected to, and should. Yeah, that's good to hear. So, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's the place for the game. I wanted to take a risk on it because I thought that there is something here that is not quite the. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, as, yeah, as, as we were saying last time, I, I think, yeah, for a 30 minute dungeon crawl, which is what it is solo, I, I just <laughs> don't. See, you could ask any more of it. Yeah. It's, it's not the most complex game in the world, but there's enough there tactically to to engage you. Yeah, definitely a, a lot of interest. I mean, I'm not going to buy it. Most likely, I'm not mm. going to ask it, ask to borrow it again. But uh, I would definitely play it if, if I saw it being played. Good stuff. This is Ravage. We're joined this episode by Lovey Blake from Stop, Drop and Roll Games and also from Jonah Minito. Um, so we're going to be talking about board games and the environment. Uh, Laurie, would you like to go first to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, my name's Laurie Blake. I'm an autistic board game designer from Stop, Drop and Roll Games. And I am the designer and publisher of Earth Rising, which is currently on Kickstarter and has done really amazingly well so very happy to be here at the moment happy to have you with us jonah how about you uh yes my name's jonah Minato, and i my uh, i review board games my channel is one pip wonder and i have been hosting a show called across the board that focuses on um environmental sustainability and board gaming which is exactly why we wanted you to join us. You've been doing some really good work there, sort of getting in-depth and speaking to various people around the industry. Um, Thank you. No problem. So, I mean, maybe that's a, a good place to start with the discussion. Where, where based on the, your uh, research and your conversations over the last year or so, um, where do you think board games are and where do you think the the general consensus of people in the hobby is when they think about board games and the environment? Um, well, just for a little context, I, I have to be honest, I've, mm-hmm. I've always been concerned about the environment, but I've only started talking about this subject on my channel uh, this past summer. So it's all kind of new. Um, I put out a couple of videos. I've been making videos for about two to three years now, and I've put a few that were about the environment mm-hmm. here and there, and it's never gotten any real feedback um, or 
or really any attention. So uh, this past summer, I decided I'm just going to really pursue publishers and board game designers that are making games more sustainably. And when I put out, I, I, I'm in some different Facebook groups that are board game related, and I was seeking people like who is making board games with the environment in mind. And mm. there was very little information. And there was like, someone was like, oh, this person's doing something. But it wasn't like, oh, this brand is really focusing. Like there, there wasn't anything about it. So I realized that was a red flag. Like, okay, there isn't a lot of information out there. There isn't a lot of attention on this. Um, so I decided to, when I'm writing board games, I'm going to talk about their environmental impacts to the best of my knowledge, because mm -hmm. there isn't a lot of information out there. I always had to say, like, this is what I can tell from looking at this board game, how environmentally friendly it is based off of, you know, how much plastic's in it and the packaging and just, you know, trying yeah. to do, do the best I could. Um, but that sparked a conversation on social media. And I posted that on... Um, I'm just going to share, like I posted it on the Dice Tower Facebook page and I got a lot of feedback finally. And a lot of it was dismissive and like, mm -hmm. oh, we don't need to worry about this. Our hobby is so small. It's yeah. a drop in the bucket. And our hobby is so um, by nature community driven. And like we reuse our board games, we resell our board games. Like it's more environmentally friendly than other hobbies. And there's truth in that, but ultimately there was a lot of just misinformation about mm -hmm. uh, manufacturing and our our part as consumers, um, and also um, just the the real impacts of the board games that we we consume all the time. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it it, it does. Started, so. It does. I think. I mean, I've heard this before that oh, you know, we're such a small hobby and it's not having a big impact and all of that. Um, but I mean, I mean, really, it's it's a very basic thing, isn't it? It goes back to to small acorns. Mm -hmm. If you're if you're concerned about the environment, then sort of partitioning this one part of your life and going, oh well, that bit doesn't matter. You know, I, I can buy eighteen board games and it doesn't have any impact because I planted a tree last February. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's not an either or situation. <laughs> right, right, and I think as. Um, people as consumers like we are so disconnected to the products that we <clears throat> surround ourselves with and so as someone who like i i try to research like where's my clothing coming from where's my food mm -hmm. coming from where's you know different products in my household um that i use for cleaning or whatever um why wouldn't i want to see that same care taken in my hobbies my luxury yeah. um so that was very much the motivation. And in, in kind of like, I'm not, um, like I'm not really good at being environmentally friendly. I do the best I can. I try mm -hmm. to research. And when I went into this with my board gaming hobby, I was just really surprised at the lack of attention. So yeah. that's why I kind of just was like, all right, let's talk about this. Mm. It, it seems to me that now people do start to be, being ready to have that conversation, obviously, this, so that that your Kickstarter, uh, mm. Laurie, is is, is uh, evidence of that. And I, I wonder if that's in part because we, we've seen a lot of fairly hard thought in the last few years about you know depictions of women, depictions of non-white people, depictions of non-binary people. These are things that we should have, 
and there's people are now you know, gutting out of the well games are for people like me into yeah games can be for everybody. Mm. Yeah, actually, I I think that's Jenny was saying before about how you know you said you're not very good at being environmentally friendly, and I think actually that's I think if anything that's being unfair to yourself because really the thing that allows people to be un like um, friendly or unfriendly to the environment is down to what's available to them and mm. our societies are very much built around quick consumption and mm. cheapness first and foremost and what is most accessible to us is most often incredibly environmentally unfriendly and so unless you have the money and the resources to be able to actively seek out and spend more to be able to um, uh, consume in a way that is environmentally conscious our society by its very makeup makes that very difficult. Um, and I think that the most important thing about taking on board games as a means of uh, making a stand against the environment and such is about going, you know what? Yes, we need to make everything environmentally conscious and environmentally friendly because there shouldn't be any limit to uh, where we make things easy. Yeah. It, if Amen. we if we can do it for luxury items, we absolutely can do it for normal, mm-hmm. and that's to me that's that's the biggest message. And I think this you know, this goes back to what how we started this, doesn't it? In terms of it's it's not an either or situation. Yeah, Jonah, you might say you're not very good at being um, particularly environmental or all the rest of it, but all you can do is you know, be as aware as you can when you've got a decision make bear that in mind as you make the decision and that's something it's better than nothing right right exactly um and not to mention the fact you know uh, i hope you don't mind me saying so jonah but i, I know you you've got kids and that makes it even more difficult that's a whole mm. nother step and every every element that you have in your life that means that you don't have maximum flexibility I and mean, the, the stereotypes of board gamers are you know male and pale you know you you have and a gigantic bookcase full of board games because you have large amounts of of free income realistically speaking that's not everybody and realistically speaking it shouldn't be an excuse so i think it's it's important to say that if there's any change to be made it should start with the manufacturers and the providers mm. and end with the consumers not the other way around do you not think there's an argument that it has to be a, a bottom-up change, that it's a consumer-driven market? Um, from a consumer-driven market, you need to make it clear what you want, but mm. that you don't have the power to determine all of it. So the louder people shout, the more people say, this is what I want, the more people say, I'm not backing this because of how much plastic it yeah. has in it, the more people go, well... You know, I, I, I'm just not sure I need another board game on my shelf when I'm not really going to play it. The more designers take a step back and go, OK, if I want to get this market, yeah. how do I need to approach it? Because I'm trying to think there was a game a year or two on Kickstarter, I think, um, that they made a, a big deal that they shipped their game instead of having cellophane wrapping around the decks of cards, they put a paper band around it, which I thought was a really progressive step. We did the and same then- Hugs and Mugs a lot of people complained that the cards weren't properly protected. So that, that was then the, the, the manufacturer, it might've been Lucky Duck, whichever manufacturer, publisher it was, I should say, sorry, not manufacturer, whichever publisher it was then took a step back and said, well, okay, we won't do that with our next game. Hmm. Mm. 
Yeah, from what I've understood, it's been touch and go with the paper bands. And um, apparently it's the top and bottom cards that get the most damage. Yeah. So I think part of uh, being a flexible uh, problem solver is to say, all right, well, let's design our decks of cards with that in mind. Yeah. And let's have a throwaway card on the top and, and bottom. And whether the manufacturer should provide that. And the or the publisher, that's up to them to sort that out. But that's I mean, it, it's this problem. Yeah, it's easily done. Yeah, having been involved on the publishing side of things, you know, uh, uh, cards are printed as a sheet of I think it's fifty four or fifty six cards. Um, frequently, we end up with some spare cards in that which are used as advertising for other games anyway. So mm-hmm. you just tell the, the manufacturer that you want one of those advertising cards, bottom and top of the deck. Mm-hmm. Solved. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Or even you could just get an entire uh, envelope, much like you know when you buy paper, mm. uh, printer paper from a store when it's completely covered in basically a whole seal of paper. Um, why not just do that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, rather than just one band which squeezes, you know, and and creates that friction as it moves, mm. put the whole thing just like we do with cellophane wrap. It's no difference. Just paper. Yeah. One thing I wanted to sort of nudge us towards, um, and I, I think we're skirting this issue right now. Um, the other thing that I've sort of seen repeated, other than, oh, we're a small hobby, we have no impact, is, oh, board games are just cardboard anyway, it's, it's fine. <laughs> and and we've already just sort of skirted this here by talking about cards that are wrapped in cellophane. Yeah. But firstly, games aren't just cardboard. Mm-hmm. Um, cards have plastic backing and fronting to them if ever you walk around a, a country road you'll see rubbish that's been thrown out of car windows the cardboard disintegrates there are the sort of you know the ghosts of juice cartons that are there you can still read the labels on them the plastic is still there that doesn't disappear and paper cardboard it has um, it's, it's again it's not just wood pulp um, when I was growing up in Cornwall in the 80s and into the 90s there was a, an area of Cornwall that you could see from 20 miles distance um, colloquially, it was known as the Cornish Alps. And what this area was, was great big waste tips, stark white from the China clay industry. Wow. And it's now that that's sort of been through a big environmental project since the end of the 20th century of things like the Eden Project and things that have, um, you know, a lot of environmental focus for redeveloping it. But China clay is not just... Um, it's not just crockery. China clay is part of glossy paper. It's a very widely used mineral throughout the world, and it's part of publishing in that sense. Uh, so, yeah, p- paper, plastic, it's not a, a, a one-way or a, a either or black and white thing. So as a part of my Across the Board series, I actually did a video about what you can recycle in a board mm-hmm. game. And uh, when you get down to it, there's there's not a whole lot. You, no. you could recycle the board possibly, and mm-hmm. the cardboard box as long as it doesn't have a you know a high gloss or um, spot UV on it. Uh, yeah. Those printing uh, processes add plastic to the ink, so you really have to be aware of that. Those things cannot go in the recycling bin. That mm-hmm. cardboard cannot be reused, and um, so. Yeah, I mean, you the chits are so little. I don't know if they could be recycled or not. Practic like you could they'll disintegrate in your backyard, but I don't think they can really be put in the recycling process. Um 
the minis, the inserts, the dice, none of that stuff can go in the yeah. recycling bin. So actually, when you when you look at your board game uh, from an environmental perspective, like a very little bit can actually be recycled into can, a new product. Can we dispel another related myth as well? Yeah. Maybe. So I think a lot of people look at board games and say, oh, this is like, this is a, this is a legacy artifact. I'm going to put it on my shelf. I'm going to play it forever. My children will play it. My grandchildren will play it. That's just not true. No. <laughs> Unless it's like a really fantastic crokinole board. Uh, probably not. Yeah. I reckon, I mean, this is just a completely made up figure. I reckon on average, being generous, a board game will be played 10 times. I have quite a few games that we play a lot more than that. So, but I have a small collection. I'm yeah. not a collector. I, I buy games that I'm going to replay mm-hmm. um, as much as I can. So I think that is for a lot of people probably true. Yeah. I think there's also the other side of it, which is that, um, you know what, in comparison to the, to the world at large and what is expected to be a lifespan for an item that you buy, you know what, board games do have a longer lifespan. Mm most things i will grant that that is fair however that doesn't mean that no matter how long the lifespan that doesn't mean that it will not eventually end up in our environment yeah. and just because something takes a long time to get there doesn't mean that that effect doesn't happen it just means mm-hmm. the effect happens later which means mm-hmm. we're going to take even longer to counteract the mess we're making today mm-hmm. because these things last longer it's not a better thing but it's also not like it's not something that the board game industry should be praised for. And mm. I think that's the biggest thing that's strange to me is people going, oh, the board game industry is great because, you know, we're making these things that last so long. And I'm like, yeah, so long until it eventually hits anyway. Right. <laughs> I, I, I believe it was one, one of the uh, points when Legacy Games got started, uh, Risk Legacy in particular, that they, they'd done, they did some research before publishing and, uh, that there was a general feeling, particularly something like Risk. It's a board game; it lives on your shelf forever, etc. Mm. And they, I remember the, it, the publisher saying at the time, "Yeah, most games don't actually get played more than the sort of ten or twelve times that you're going to get out of this." So, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, my, my personal argument there is, you can't then give it to somebody else to play again. But that, that's a separate. No, thing. but I, th- I think that average games played is. Um, I, th- I think that probably includes passing it on to other people. And if, if I've got a game and I like it and I enjoy it and I keep playing it, then I'll hold on to it. And then I'll hit, you know, 20, 40 plays that'll keep going. If I'm not enjoying it, even if it's a good game, I will trade it. I will pass it on after two, three games. But then maybe that person only plays it two, three times. And mm-hmm. so you're still, I think 10, 12 games is probably sort of an average for most board games. Mm. Even then, I, uh, not, I don't want to be mean or anything, but have you, have you, tried picking up a, a second-hand game that someone's clearly played like 10 or 12 <laughs> times or so. The bits are gungy. The, the stuff's got bits peeling off it. It's terrible. You, I'll be honest. My, my experience has been better than yours. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think that's like if you go to a Goodwill or a yard sale or flea market, yeah, mm. it's going to be in rough shape. But I Just think like, there are um, marketplaces that are reliable where you yeah. can buy a game that it, it is going to be in decent shape and have been used before so um but, like i know uh board game geek yeah their marketplace is pretty good yeah and they're fairly good i think for describing things on there i know i mean they have their own system for describing condition of games which a lot of people <laughs> complain about but at least yeah. there is you know that there is a standard there 
Mm-hmm. And just in our game group, like we play with other gamers and they, I mean, they take care of their games as well as we do. So I know if I purchase a game from them, it's going to be. Yeah. Again, I suppose, you know, there's a, a big difference between, you know, a secondhand copy of a, a niche hobby game and risk or monopoly. monopoly yeah. <laughs> That's probably had all the pieces sucked on by a toddler at some point. <laughs> <laughs> or a dog. <laughs> or both. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, when you were you were mentioning the legacy, uh, for I have a rating system uh, for for figuring out if a game is very eco friendly. Of ten stars, up to ten stars that a game can get, mm-hmm. and there's one thing that can reduce a star, and that is if it's a legacy game, because it's it's that trend is taking away the one aspect that is eco friendly, innately eco friendly mm-hmm. in the board gaming hobby. Can you talk us more through your scale? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So eco-friendly stars, this is meant to be very positive. I try not to say, oh, this game isn't eco-friendly because that's Mm -hmm. not true. All games are kind of just like baseline, pretty much the same, but some games do better. Some publishers and designers do better than others. So some of them will get stars for um, if they clearly state the raw materials in their board game how much of the cardboard is recycled? Is there any recycled plastic in the game? Um, is there any repurposed wood? Is the is the paper, is the wood pulp from FSC certified mm-hmm. um, manufacturers or, or, or resources? So those are things that I'm looking for. Definitely will get stars when that is clearly stated. Uh, if the publisher is talking about sustainability on their website, um, that's really important to me too. Also, if a if a designer makes commitments to make games that are more environmentally sustainable, I would give a game specifically because of that designer's you know statement to do that. They would get a star for that. Uh, they get a star for having no plastic components in the game. They get a star for reducing or not using any one use plastic. So if they mm-hmm. can somehow not use shrink wrap that's that's a really uh difficult thing a lot of games just need that shrink wrap for protection but if they're trying something else if they're reducing that one use plastic somehow they'll definitely get a star from me also um if they're reducing like plastic bags like haba is a uh company i get a lot of kids games i Mm -hmm. do a lot of kids games and they use brown paper bags instead of ziploc plastic bags for their components on perfect so they get stars for that one thing that they do um though you can get a star for having uh not having a plastic insert so if you just do like a cardboard divider to protect the pieces in the game, um, that would get a star. And then um, if there's soy water-based or algae inks in the printing process in mm-hmm. lieu of uh, petrol-based inks, uh, if there was clean energy used in the manufacturing or in the shipping, so, you know, you know, someday when we have fleets of electric cars, that's, you know, get board games on those fleets. Um, carbon emission reduction or offsetting is something that I'm looking for. Uh, and then if the board game publisher provides how to recycle information on the box. So that's something no one's really doing. And it's really important. People need to understand the, the shrink wrap cannot go in the recycling bin. And that is, um, 
you know, on the publisher to clarify that. So there is a process there to getting logos on how to recycle. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that is an extra step that publishers could definitely start do you think, thinking. Do you think there's a resistance to that in that um, giving instructions basically of how to throw your game away? is acknowledging um, <laughs> it's not going to be around forever. <laughs> yeah, I think some people are like, they don't like to talk about that. Yeah. But I think that's kind of um, unreasonable. Like we have to, yeah. we have everything that we consume creates waste. Mm. And that is just a reality we all have to live up to. Just because for the last 20 years, we were sending all of our junk and trash to other parts of the world. Yeah. Now we have to face it and we have to realize like, what we consume creates waste and we need to be responsible for it. And manufacturers need to help consumers understand that. Yeah. I mean, the manufacturer thing is, is different. And sometimes we use manufacturer and publisher interchangeably when of course they are different yeah. things. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I talk to a lot of people that like, they kind of fit both roles. Yeah. Or... So I'm sorry about that. No, that's okay. But really I think it would be the publisher who could, you know, design the box and like mm -hmm. get that logo on there. Yeah. It would be. Yeah. be instructing yeah. the consumer how they but it is that. you know it is interesting as well from the manufacturer standpoint you know that games that are manufactured in europe generally cost a lot more mm -hmm. but are environmentally better yeah. in china things have been changing um there was the cost of gray card about we talked about this um several podcasts ago i think with uh ren multimaki from dragon dawn productions <laughs> and michael kranzler from heidelberg games um, the cost of grey card in China has gone up something like sixfold over the last four years, and that's solely due to local environmental legislation in China. So, I mean, you know, that, that's a good thing. And so there is yeah. change happening on that end as well. But again, that's not that's, that's a change that's being forced on the industry. And it almost runs counter to, to some of the other things that we've mentioned in terms of um, spot UV production. I, I had two games from Kickstarter recently. I was so disappointed when they both turned up with spot UV, or, you know, your glossy finish on the boxes. It's, it's unnecessary. Yeah, totally unnecessary. It's a, that's why I harp on it so much. Like I, I know it's not the biggest impact, but it's the easiest swap. Yeah. Just opt out of it. It's, it's it, not what, necessary. It's not adding game. anything to it. Yeah. And I mean, I, again, I guess I, you know, I just mentioned harking back to that other podcast discussion we had it, it, two podcasts ago. We were discussing the deluxification of board games and, mm. um. Spoiler alert for anybody that hasn't listened to that episode, Roger and I and our guest are all pretty much against it. <laughs> um, well, at, at least at the manufacturer level. Yeah, I mean, it, sort it, of the Kickstarter level, as it were. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's it, it, distinct from adding, you're blinging out your games personally. That's fine. If it's the game that you love <laughs> and you want to, as Roger does, print 3D components, all the rest of it, that's on a completely different level to the deluxe version of board games with all the wooden pieces converted to plastic and yeah, all the rest mm. of it. Yeah. I just want to speak to, to something that you mentioned that like mm. European games generally are considered or thought of to be more expensive mm. than Chinese produced games or manufactured games. But if you, if you really think about it, the majority of stick kickstarters are coming out of China Yeah, and those are freaking expensive yeah and <laughs> again yeah the, the the publisher location as distinct from the manufacturer location a european publisher is probably still having their getting kick-started games produced in china it's different from the traditional you know lookout say who do produce all their games in in germany mm. um harbor that you mentioned earlier do produce all their games in europe not necessarily in germany now i think right, right. um like 
I forget where. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe they've moved to Eastern Europe somewhere. But, you know, the, the, the legislation, again, which the legislation driving the change in what grey card prices in China, the legislation in Europe is that much higher. And that's part of why the manufacturing process is more environmentally responsible. It might not be the only reason, but it's part of it. Yeah. And that is really a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I am an economist by training, so I, I, I tend to be fairly pessimistic about things. If if the manufacturer doesn't have an incentive to clean things up because they don't have to live with their own rubbish, they don't have an incentive to clean things up. That's true, yeah. I forgot about that, Roger. We come at this from the, the opposite angles of the spectrum, don't we? <laughs> so I'm a... For Jonah, Laurie, anybody else that doesn't know, I'm a zooarchaeologist by training. So sit, looking at the, the long-term... Um, development of the environment and also sifting through people's rubbish is what I did for 20 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Cool. Well, really I cool. think that it's, um, I think it's really fascinating to see how the public um, opinion has shifted even just in the last year. Mm. Um, mm. Because I think that now people are actually getting to see, as you say, the rubbish that is ending up on on other people's beaches on, and, and not even just because it's washed up there but because mm. it's personally dumped there um and being able to see the effects that we're having on our planet and further yeah. in in regards to all the forest fires that are happening all the 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 various the flooding. storms flooding yeah. everything that is happening it's undeniable it people still try to you know, of course but nonetheless it is effectively <laughs> undeniable we have so much in front of us now that people are going, Oh shit, like it's, it's too late. Uh, it's, it's, what do we do? And I think that's what I feel people like myself and, and Jonah and, and other people who are trying mm. to draw attention to it are going, we can still do things. It's not too late. We can make mm-hmm. a difference, but we have to start now. Um, and until we, when, until we make that statement loud and clear, not enough people will hear it to realize it can be done. Um, mm. And I think that people are starting to hear it enough now that general consensus is starting to shift. Mm-hmm. Here, here in the UK, at least, we, we had a lot of very widely shared news stories that basically took the form of this popular tourist spot, beach, whatever, opened after um, pandemic closures. And here is the amount of rubbish that was left mm. by the crowd at the first weekend. Mm-hmm. And I, I've certainly heard people who really do not otherwise talk about this stuff say, that's that's kind of a lot. I mean, I live in Brighton. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, you think it's bad seeing pictures of it? You should see it. Like the, I mean, the, there was a a shot of Brighton just after the pandemic opened, uh, and, and COVID was a hot spot there. Nonetheless, thousands of people down on this tiny beach. Yeah, the amount of trash that Brighton was. It was like something out of an apocalypse. Um, and for yeah. For- Context for listeners, Brighton's a, a very liberal town city, city, isn't it, in the UK? It's owned by uh, the Greens. What well, I say owned, you know, the, the Greens are the ones that run the council there. So yeah, they're, they're as, as forward as like the most it can be in the UK. Yeah, the yeah. only Green Party MP for the last decade or so. Yeah. Hmm. And yet, despite that, we are overwhelmed by the amount of, of rubbish that we produce in, in anywhere we, we touch. But, but as I say, that's not that's not a problem of people that's a problem of of the society that mm. encourages not only that kind of consumerism but on top of that the kinds of packaging that we have 
Mm. You know, it's the disposable lifestyle that is considered desirable or what a lot of manufacturers, corporations, they they want us to buy and throw away and buy again yeah. and throw away that that's very profitable for them. And they're starting to realize, like, wow, we really are the villains in this story. <laughs> you think they're better, realizing? Uh, put the brakes on this. Um, and I, th I think that's part of uh, why it's so important to talk about this in our hobby, because mm -hmm. it yeah, it may just be a drop in the bucket, but it's all part of our life. It's it's yeah, I spend my money on my board games. It's, it's mm. incredibly important part of my life and to think that it doesn't mean anything um i think is the opposite like i am a tiny little youtube channel i have less than two thousand subs but i have been talking with designers i've been talking mm -hmm. with like people like you i've been talking with manufacturers and people are listening and it's because we have a small niche hobby we do have a voice in this hobby and if we care about something we can change it and i think People who spend their time and money solving problems and facing challenges and, you know, being a gamer is part of facing a challenge and enjoying it. And I think we are the people to solve these problems that manufacturers are running into. Uh, so I think if a small industry can put a larger industry to shame, that's what I'm hoping for <laughs> in our board gaming hobby. I absolutely agree. I, I One thing I've always said about gamers is that, you know, gamers as a whole are very uh focused on being goal-led you want this thing you need these victory points you can get it by these means okay we can do that you know you you will you will decide on a strategy and and you will find a way there possibly that no one else even thought of because you've got four or five different people all trying to get there too but you will find a way to win this that is the attitude that board gamers have. And that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Like that's the best attitude towards <laughs> our crisis that yes. anyone could possibly hope for. And then you've got on top of that, the ecological side of things where you've, you've effectively got all our activists who are angry and, and, mm. and justifiably so and, and want things to change. And if we can marry those two things together of being goal led and angry and wanting things to change, then hell, we're going to get change. Cause I'll be honest with you. I'm not standing in the way of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a speech, Lovey. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned in touching there, sort of, uh, you know, the way that you and uh, and Jonah and different individuals are trying to go about changing things. Obviously, you've got your Kickstarter campaign going on at the moment, and we've already um, mentioned perhaps you know that this sort of parallel problem of you know, the deluxification of board games that uh, is started out on kickstarter and that brings with it expectations so how, how have you gone about navigating a kickstarter campaign so it's a fascinating thing because all of the advice towards kickstarters is all incredibly uh commodified mm. and incredibly um you know impulse driven mm. and in and designing the campaign for earth rising was so incredibly difficult because we almost we either go with the theme of the game and drop all that, or we go with what works on Kickstarter mm. and, and you know, increase our chances of success. Well, we don't want to fail, so we need to increase our chances of success. But also, we're really passionate and really care about the theme of our game, so we do not want to overly commodify this. So, you know, we can't have things like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're an ecologically friendly game, so, hey, why not buy a keep cup? Because, you know... 
you can buy a keep cup and look, it's sustainable and all that. It's like, yeah, okay, but it's just more stuff. Yeah. In the end, it's just dressed up commodification. It's just dressed up consumerism. We don't want to be that. So our stretch goals were things that would improve the game, but not in a way that would make it less sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a fr- our, our one kind of add-on stretch goal is the is the the glass strain counters. And I'll be honest with you, the only reason that we're allowing those as a thing is because it turns out glass is incredibly sustainable. You know, it's made out yes. of sand. Um, it has it has black paint on it, but the black paint on the underside to make them black is is um, uh, it, it's non. It's non-petroleum based, like you were saying mm-hmm. earlier. Um, so we, we've got these, we've got all of our various stuff and we've made sure that none of them are, um, uh, none of them are, are negative to the environment or in mm-hmm. any way adding to any of the problems. But at the same time, we were like, we need more ways to be able to kind of make people engage with our campaign, but not in a way that makes them want to just buy more stuff for the sake of it. <laughs> um, and that's where we came up with the idea of like donating copies um, and also with our micro goals for like the more people help us share the game, the more trees we're going to plant in return. Mm-hmm. Um, so the more people like share on Facebook or, or become a board game geek fan, then we'll plant trees in exchange um, and little things like that. And I think these ways are kind of, they're almost subverting the classic thing of like, well, if you do this stuff for us, we'll give you more, you'll yeah. get more minis and you'll get more cards and you'll get more stuff. Instead, we're going, yeah, okay, you know what? Actually, we do want your help. We need your help sharing this because we are a small company. But in exchange, we're going to increase the amount we offset our, you know, what effects we have. You know, Jonah mentions on on her own sort of channel and that, that we, we're trying to make our game produce 100% sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what Hero Time, our manufacturer, have said that they can do. Um, so, you know, we're going with them because no one's been able to touch them in regards to being able to uh, produce a game better. Um, they, they do They do claim that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They claim they can do it 100% sustainable. So we're going to give them that chance because, you know yeah. what, if that's what they claim, then they deserve our money. It deserves uh, to be put to the test, certainly. Definitely. I mean, you know, there, there are um, controversies around offsetting. Yes, Absolutely. But ultimately, we have to get our game somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also can't... I, we, we discussed this at length, Jonah, but we, we're not able to change the shipping industry as a small company. But we can change yeah. the board game industry. Mm-hmm. And if we use our campaign as a showcase of going, look, we can have great high-quality games that do not have to have an impact on the world. If that means that we have to... Uh, we have to ship things from China, but we at least do what we can in order to offset that damage. Then, then I think that's a worthy trade-off. Uh, the most important thing is that we found a fantastic uh, offsetting company. That means that we know for a fact that our trees aren't going to be grown only to then be fed into a wood chipper or into a biopower plant. Because, oh my goodness, the amount of stories we've heard where it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, we're really environmentally friendly because we've grown all these trees and then we sold them to a biopower plant and then we burnt them. And it's like, that's the opposite of environmentally friendly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the whole offsetting carbons with planting trees, it sounds nice, but it's very shady. It's, um, the the maths on it doesn't work yeah, because it's... Yeah. It's, it's predicated on a tree lasting for, you know, 100 years, 200 years, whatever, and most of them don't, and you can't guarantee that it will. 
And I want anyone listening to this to know if you have a backyard, you should plant as many trees as you can in it. And but not expect but and wildflowers, but do not expect your board game manufacturer to offset their their uh, carbon emissions with trees. It will not even out the same way. Thank you. So a little thing on that, since that's obviously like that's what we're we're saying we're doing. Um, so but, I mean, company, I appreciate you're doing other things. We are doing that's other what, things. There's a lot of there's a lot of companies that are like, this is what we're doing. I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's the cherry on top. What are you really doing? Because- <laughs> so, so offsetting obviously is the only real way in which we can counteract shipping. There isn't much more we can do about it, to my knowledge. I'm mm-hmm. open to other people's suggestions. Not that we can change it at this point for this campaign, but it's something to bear in mind for other people looking to do this and also something to bear in mind for people who are um uh, for our future games actually anyway point is um the company that we're using doesn't just put that money which is offsetting into tree growth um it also puts it into other positive uh things that will increase sustainability such as uh things that improve uh oh no the word's gone from me it's for Uh, women empowerment thank you yes other things that improve female empowerment um and which is awesome um, positive uh, approaches to power generation systems in um, in developing countries, all of which are really good, mm. um, and it's important to set up that that green infrastructure before black infrastructure takes hold. So, really, really good stuff. It's not just going into trees. Finding companies that do that is positive offsetting. Mm-hmm. Just finding a company that goes, yeah, give us money and we'll plant some trees. That's not doing it. Right, right. Yeah, and I appreciate that about the option that you went with. Um, I know another designer, Sam Levick-Levy, was using, um, oh gosh, Cooler. And they actually purchase permits uh, from Mm -hmm. the government that will, basically once those permits are are, um, bought up, uh, corporations cannot continue to pollute in those states. So so they're they're in uh, different states in the united states i forget which ones um he sent me links of that information it's actually in my video when i talked to him and so i thought that was interesting because once those permits are bought up those factories shut down so that is a very different aspect to the idea of uh offsetting carbon so like they they estimated their carbon footprint and then they put the money that they felt that they should pay into purchasing permits rather than a tree or um, something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I saw recently um, that there's starting to be some thinking that a, a lot of your classic uh, mineral rights uh, sale systems have some sort of, if you don't use it, then it reverts to the state and they can sell it to somebody else because they want it, you know, they are dug up or whatever it was. And, and th- then a, a number of places are now thinking about re- removing that. So if somebody wants to say, I will buy the mineral rights here and promise not to mine, yeah, that's a thing they can do. Yeah, another thing to consider when it when it comes to shipping is at the very base design level, we need to you need to design a game that is going to be light. And the lighter the game and the smaller the game, the less fuel will be used to transport it from mm-hmm. location to location. So that is something to bear in mind. And not all games are going to, you know, be sellable if they're super tiny or uh, required, like you might need a game to be a little bit bigger, but it is something to consider at the design level that that does affect the carbon footprint of transportation when mm-hmm. we're delivering all these games to consumers. 
Yeah, when, when we were talking with uh, Rand a few uh, a few episodes back, we were talking about the, the whole shelf presence thing. And you know, personally, I wouldn't have thought that the presence of a game on a physical shelf would be all that important anymore. But he reckons, yeah, it's absolutely a thing in driving yes. sales numbers. So, yeah, actually, just yeah, I just did an episode with uh, T. Kairos from. Haba, and they were saying how so much of the manufacturing process is finding the right box because so many retail stores, like they want certain size boxes in certain mm-hmm. places. And if you have a box that's like this big, but you make it this big, it's going to sell way faster. So then you have to consider like, well, well, do we want our game to sell or sit? Is it mm-hmm. more wasteful for it to sit uh, and never get played? So you have to... Ugh. So complicated. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's compromises all, all along the line, isn't there? And that, that's, you know, how, how we started out. I think saying you, you do what you can, you educate yourself, and you do, the, you make the decisions, the best decisions you can, informed decisions, basically. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I, I'm one of the few positives that came out of the coronavirus pandemic was that it brought a lot of people's attentions to gaming online. Um, and the fact that there are a lot of board games available online that you can play with each other from afar. Um, and I see this personally as a really positive development in the board game world um, because it means that whilst it's fantastic to play on a table next to each other um, and, and you know, it, that is what it's all about at its core, being able to enjoy these games with each other also online and also as a, uh, uh, also as a sort of digital experience is also a very powerful one. Um, you know, SDR, we, I find it, it's really important that we have our games uh, available online for free regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we feel that if you're going to buy our game, you're buying the physical copy. That doesn't mean you can't try it online. That's a separate thing because not everyone can afford a board game, but nonetheless, you can still play it online. Yeah. And I think that that's a great means of people lowering their footprint while still being able to increase, still being able to enjoy themselves. Um, is that online uh, area something that Roger's engaged in and a lot? Yeah, well, even even if it's just uh, as I tend to do, I, I, I very one of the things I enjoy about board games is the physicality, as you mentioned. Mm. But even if it's just uh, because it exists in an online implementation, I can I can play first. I can decide, having had a few plays, is this a game I actually want to buy my own personal physical copy of? Mm. And if I say no, well, you know, that's doing some good as well. Yeah. So I think we're we're moving towards a, a conclusion to this discussion, aren't we? <laughs> I'm, and as with all of our discussions, I don't think there's... Um... You're all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I think that's where we normally end up, isn't it? I don't know why people still listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to hear that it's not like that for once. <laughs> so yeah p- people should educate themselves more there, there is we do have power as consumers it, it doesn't have to be a top down change um, and I think it almost has to be bottom up in some regards um, I mean you, you've made a lot of decisions Laurie for, for your Kickstarter uh, but that you know in some ways they're compromises and I noticed um, as well as putting front and centre your sustainability uh, commitments. Um, there was also a big box of a foil, foil stamped box for early backers. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Which 
to me, ran slightly counter to the environmental. It's not thing. for early backers. It's actually just it's just the first edition thing as a whole. Right. Um, but basically, foil. Um, we we have looked into it, and, mm. and foil doesn't. While it it uses a tiny amount of metal, it doesn't actually in any way um, uh, affect the recyclability or degrading mm-hmm. of it in the environment. Unlike spot UV, which utilizes some plastic and such, foil doesn't yeah. have that effect. So it, it, it's it's better than that, but it is still a compromise in some regards. And and I understand that because yeah, you, you want you want to make the best, most attractive product you can. I mean, in, in the early stages, I do, do correct me if I, if I'm misremembering this, but there was at one point a suggestion that you were going to be looking for multiple local manufacturers to minimize the shipping. Obviously, that hasn't been possible because of the capabilities available. That, uh, I think you're thinking of Earthborn Rangers. Um, okay. They, they did that. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, and that's, did, that's yeah. absolutely a fantastic way of doing it. Um, however, it's an incredibly pricey way of doing it. And this is yeah. our second game and we just can't sure. afford it. Um, it's, you know, we, we absolutely exhausted our fundings just running this campaign. Um, you know, it's, if we'd have approached something like that, we, we wouldn't have stand a chance, but you know what the fact is that those are tactics that Mm. are fantastic ways of changing, uh, how people can do things and how, uh, you know, how we can spread the. Um, effect that our games production makes to be as minimal as possible, and that's and I I don't want to sort of say oh that's not me so let's move on. I, instead, I'd, I'd much rather say that's not me, but that's still really good. Like that's mm-hmm. a great means of dealing with that problem in a different yeah. way. Um, so yeah. Good stuff. Has anybody got any final thoughts they want to to make before we wrap it up? Hmm. I think the board game industry is going to be changing a lot in the next five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what people are buying is changing. And so as a result, what people will be offering is changing. I don't know how viable it's going to remain for small producers as a small producer in the stage it is now. We've come in at the hardest time and yeah, you know what? It has become more difficult than it was five, six years ago. Mm -hmm. But just because it's different doesn't mean it won't, be achievable in other places and ultimately this is a passion driven industry first and foremost and so Mm -hmm. i think ultimately where there's people with passion there will be a way forward yeah i i agree with laurie i feel like that um although there's a lot of bleak uh forecast out there on the state of the environment and climate change uh but there's also good news that the the more we learn, the the more we realize we can be more efficient at making change and um, being more sustainable, but also healing the damage that there is. Uh, so I feel like there is hope and I feel that that's the strongest message we need to get mm-hmm. out there. We need to just talk about this as mm-hmm. something that is accepted, that is reasonable, that is not going to hurt our gaming hobby we are going to grow our hobby sustainably and i think that is what we should all just embrace and uh pursue with passion very good yeah i think that i think that's right i think um i mean the fact that we're having this conversation now mm-hmm. i mean uh, you know you weren't um you weren't part of board game media five years ago i wasn't um but, you know, if we were, I don't know that we would have been having this conversation. And 
it seems like it's something that's happening more now and that can only be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it's also something that, you know, the board game industry will change, but I think so will everything else because there's too much of a call and a need for things to change as a whole, yeah. how we do things, whether it be from shipping, whether it be from the plastic wrap that our food comes in, whether it be anything. I think it's all going to begin shifting and it already has in many ways, mm. just gradually, imperceptibly. Yeah. Earth Rising's system is that every turn that you have is a year because these things don't happen overnight. Change takes time and that's okay. We don't like, we don't want to not make change because we have time, but nonetheless, we have to accept that these things do happen gradually. Mm. Got to keep pushing, but it will still be gradual. Okay. Anything you want to add, Roger? Uh, well, just just the usual. Um, why why isn't three D printed player thing? Um, meant, meant, I, I, a lot of gamers know somebody who has a three D printer or can run one for them. I've seen what's very the environmental little. impact, Roger, of you printing out a game for me and then driving it to my house. Well, yeah, that's the problem. Um, <laughs> the the materials I'm using are not as recyclable as I'd like. You can compost PLA, but it's it needs a special composter, and most councils don't even know that this is a thing they can have. Yeah. Never mind actually have it. So. That's, that's love, not as great as it would be. I just want to say I love 3D printing as a concept. I think 3D printing is absolutely the way forward. We just need better materials and it, we need better ways to be able to have them be able to break down. Once we have that, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, 3D printing, board gamers, seize the means of production, make your <laughs> games. Like, that. that's it. Like that's, It's a technology in its infancy, but yeah, 10, yeah. 20 years, it's going to become fairly standard, I think, for a lot of people. It's going to be fantastic. So you, just so you know, at least it's available in the United States. You can get, uh, uh, what is it, spools or um, the the material for free 3D printing. I'm, I don't have Filament. one, so I don't know the technical terms, but I was researching that you can get ones that are made from recycled plastic. Mm-hmm. post-consumer plastic so that is extremely exciting and in my town no, just the town over from me there is a uh, company that takes re- plastic post-consumer plastic and they they manufacture it locally so that's something i'm really excited about getting my hands on and starting to like make products uh mm-hmm. that are from post-consumer plastics just to show people like you know it's not it, like it's not in the recipe yet, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. It's not impossible to use this plastic that we're throwing away all the time. That's good. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic step in the right direction. And the the more ways in which we find to be able to uh, you know produce these things, I mean, people say, oh. Um, you know, put up a print and play. You know, print and play is great. What, what if we could have the next level of print and play? And now you can literally print the entire game, you know, STL files and all. Well, that would be brilliant. That's fantastic. I see a lot of war games doing that in certain mm. places where it's STL files only. You print your own. That's yeah. brilliant. That's fantastic. I think that more like that will be a positive step forward when the technology becomes it, it'll come. positive. It'll come. Yeah. Uh, we've spoken about this before on the podcast. I think yeah, it's... Eventually, there will be a subscription service to some board games. There'll be board games through Patreon where you'll you'll pay a certain amount and get a few files to print every month, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Don't like this board game anymore? Toss it in the garden. Let it dip in past. Someday, someday. Feed my veggies on it. The dream. (laughs) 
Okay, well, thanks very much, both of you, for joining us. Um, I'm going to give you a quick opportunity to, to give a full plug. I know we mentioned earlier where people can find you, but, uh, Lovie, do you want to go first? Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I am I have created the game Earth Rising. Uh, we're incredibly climate conscious. I really hope to get at least 10 stars off Jonah's system. God, I hope so. Otherwise, I'm going to cry. Anyway, oh, no. actual plugging. Um, the the yeah, the Kickstarter is still live. We have 21 days to go. We've made 20k of our 14,500 goal. We've already unlocked three out of our five stretch goals. Please come help us get some more. Do you want to briefly describe what the game is? Oh, that would help, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the game is a uh, it's a family strategy, uh, one to six player, um, uh, effectively game a cooperative game about transforming society to become sustainable um every player turn is a year and you work together in order to transform our ecological burdens the ways in which we're putting strain on our planet into positive sustainable growth and alleviate poverty and make things better for people and planet um it's a lot of fun it has a heap of replayability um it's free to play online so do come try it out um and uh yeah get in touch happy to answer any questions brilliant and for anybody wondering we're recording this podcast ahead of time so it doesn't have 21 days left to run that campaign but it does still have some time left to run okay yes absolutely (laughs) correct (laughs) okay Okay. jonah yeah um so my channel is one pip wonder and uh i'm on youtube so that's where you can see my videos my content my reviews and also my show that i host called across the board where i talk about eco-friendly gaming with manufacturers designers publishers and other gamers so i would love for you to join the conversation and you can if you ever have a question or uh just want to talk about eco-friendly gaming you can reach me at my email onepipwonder at gmail.com fantastic okay well thanks very much and uh i hope to, hope you can join us again sometime in the future thank you Well, thank you very much for joining us. That was, that was more games in time. Um, we never talk about asking people to leave a review or recommend us or the other things we're meant to do on podcasts, yeah, do we? Well, we're, we're on iTunes and Google Podcasts and Spotify, and if, if you would like to review us there, we would be... And, and we, also, we also, we should mention, we also have our own forums. Yeah, discussion.tekeli.ly. Which is uh, .li. Yes. Tekeli. Uh, has a... Yeah. Okay, I, I, I set it up because I had the domain name and it seemed appropriate. Uh, <laughs> has a section for this, this podcast, so if, if you would like to uh, chat with us and other, other like-minded uh, listeners, drop in. There we go, we're getting professional now. <laughs> <laughs> Send us money. Thanks for joining us. That's more games than time.